You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Like Ben and Wesley said, my name is Michael. I'm the director of operations and pastoral resident here at King's. I'm not the youth pastor. I'm asked that like every other week, not the youth pastor. Although at the men's retreat this weekend, trying to facilitate a game of capture the flag while there's queso out made me feel like a youth pastor again. But no, I'm not the youth pastor. I I do love to backpack though. Going into the wilderness, backpacking, camping, that's one of my favorite things to do. And the first trip that Elizabeth and I took like that was to the Superstition Wilderness outside of Phoenix, Arizona. I'll put a picture of that on the screen for you. It's beautiful, striking mountains. It's beautiful to hike in. There's lots of different kind of changes in geography and topography, but it's also extremely dangerous. There's lots of poisonous animals everywhere. There's no water because it's desert. And, and you can switch the slide, there's like radioactive waste everywhere. (laughs) And they don't know where it is. I don't know how that's possible. But they buried a bunch of radioactive waste out there and they lost it. So all the guidebooks say, don't go off the trail, right? Stay on the trail. You'll be fine if you stay on the trail. Do not go off the trail. If you leave the trail, you are dumb. I think that's a direct quote from one of them. So Elizabeth and I, we we were going to follow the trail, obviously. We started setting off into the wilderness, and uh, about four miles in, we realized that we had made a wrong turn about a mile into our hike. And uh, when we were looking at the maps, we realized that in order to get back to where we needed to go, we were going to have to turn back around for three miles, climb down another 2,000 feet, and then go up for three miles for 2,000 feet. We didn't want to do this for a number of reasons. It would be horrible anyway. But we also had 50-pound bags in our back because you have to pack in your own water. So I opened the map, and I looked at my watch, and I realized that there was a dry riverbed that ran right from where we were to a spot on the trail that we were trying to get. To be clear, it was off trail. But it was only going to be a mile long, and it was going to get us where we needed to go. It was going to be fast. And so I told Elizabeth, hey, let's take this dry riverbed. And she said, didn't the guidebook say not to do that? And I said, yeah, but they don't know me. They don't know. (laughs) They don't know what we're made of. And so we set off into the dry riverbed. And at first, I felt super vindicated. It was easy going. It was fast. But very soon, that vindication went away as the little pebbles that made up the dry riverbed turned into boulders. We are having to scramble up boulders with our bags on, trying not to turn our ankles. And then the vegetation came. And if you've never been to Arizona, you need to know that all of the plants in Arizona want to make you bleed. <laughs> they want to hurt you. And so we were jumping off of these boulders into mesquite trees. We'd have to stop and pick out the thorns. And then we'd wave through, wave through these groves of saguaro cacti, like the big ones, the cartoon-looking ones. We'd stop, and we'd have to pull out our thorns. And about an hour and a half into that, we realized that we had only gone half a mile down the dry riverbed. It was 95 degrees outside. Elizabeth was starting to run low on water, and she looked at me, and she asked me, are we going to (laughs) die? And in my mind, I was thinking, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to die. But I said, no, of course not. And I ran up a bluff. I was going to go cry. But when I was up at the bluff, (laughs) I saw in the distance a dry riverbed, or not a dry riverbed. That's where we were. I saw the trail, just a dusty path, a solitary figure on it. And I knew that that was the direction that we needed to go. So I ran down the bluff. I came back to Elizabeth and I said, hey, the trail that we need to get to, it's right up ahead. That was a lie. But it got us moving again. 
and we started moving, and it took us another hour and a half to get that second half mile, and when we got to the trail, we stopped. Elizabeth didn't talk to me for a little bit, and then she looked at me, and she said, you're the dumb person in the guidebook. I said, yeah, yeah, I am. What happened, right? What went wrong? Well, it was my hubris, it was my pride, but really what it was was my desire to be in control, right? My desire to go down the path in the way that I wanted to. I didn't want to listen to those who had gone before. I didn't want to listen to the guidebooks. I wanted to go down the path in my way, on my terms, where I wanted to and how I wanted to, and exercising control in that way, trying to lead myself and Elizabeth, actually led us to places that we didn't want to go. I wonder if I'm the only one who's felt this before. Maybe I'm the only one who's wandered off into wastelands of radioactive material. But I'd imagine I'm not the only one who's felt this, right? This, this desire to exercise control, but the realization that when we exercise control, it doesn't actually always lead us where we want to go. It doesn't actually lead us to the true, happy, and blessed life that Wesley talked about two weeks ago, right? We live in Washington, D.C. You see this all around you. Right? Nobody comes to D.C. to give up control. Right? People come here to accumulate control, to exercise control. And let me ask you, are people in D.C. noticeably happier, warmer, more excited about life than people elsewhere? I see some head shaking. No. No, the answer is no. Right? There's been some studies done on this, actually. Uh, one study found that in Washington, D.C., people experience about the same rate as mental health issues as around the rest of the country. But where Washington, D.C. is different, is the number of those people that go and get help. Around the country, about 25% of people who have mental health issues like, just don't get help. They won't get help. In Washington, D.C., that number is 50%. Why? Well, I think it's because in order to get help, you have to admit that you're out of control. And you have to be willing to give up control. And you have to be willing to listen to someone else. You have to be willing to admit that the control that you've held so tightly hasn't actually led you to happiness like you thought it would. Harma Rosa, who's a sociologist in Germany, has kind of argued this same thing, that the reason all of us are so on edge in the modern Western world is because we've been promised a world that allows us to be in control of our entire lives with a touch of a screen, and yet we find every day, every week, every year, and every season of our lives that that's actually not true, that we're actually not in control that the world to a certain extent, and our lives even to a certain extent, are uncontrollable. So what does this mean? Right, what does this do for us? What does this mean about this, this urge to be in control? What do we do with this desire to be in control with, with of every part of our life, especially in this city where so many of us are ambitious and driven and want to make a difference and have mapped out the way our lives are supposed to go? What does this mean for us? What are we supposed to do with that urge? What we're going to see today in Psalm 23 is that David says, we give it up. We give up that urge. We give up that desire and that need to be in control. And instead, we follow the leader. This is our main point today. Follow the leader. Because in the same way that a kindergartner needs to follow a leader so that he doesn't end up in the janitor's closet playing with bleach, right? Your soul needs a leader to follow. Because when we blaze our own path, we'll see, it actually, again, might lead us to places that we don't want to go. But the beautiful thing about following the leader we'll see throughout Psalm 23 is that David as David walks throughout life, as he follows the leader, he finds that the very things that his soul craves when it tries to exercise and accumulate control come to him in truer and more lasting fashion than they would otherwise. 
Specifically, we'll see that when David follows the leader and when we follow the leader, when we follow the shepherd and give up control, we find true and lasting peace, true and lasting protection, and true and lasting provision. True and lasting peace, true and lasting protection, and true and lasting provision. Now, David starts Psalm 23 with this first point, with peace. And for David in Psalm 23, as in the rest of the book of Psalms, the idea of peace is, is connected to the idea of identity. That, that understanding who we are and understanding who God is is actually what allows us to lay down control and follow the leader in the first place, to rest when he says to rest and to work when he says to work. And so that's where David begins. He begins with a statement of identity. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, to get the obvious out of the way, this is an enormously popular sentence in an enormously popular passage of scripture, right? Like maybe this isn't John 3, 16, but it's right up there. If you've been around church for any amount of time, you've taken a walk around Psalm 23 before. It's enormously popular. It's so popular, you might see it hanging up in a cracker barrel somewhere. But, but its popularity, it's popular for a reason, but its popularity sometimes leads to over-familiarity. So that we lose kind of the, the bite of the psalm, what the psalm is actually trying to say to us. And there's some bite here. David is making a statement of identity. If God is the shepherd, what does that make us? It makes us, makes us the sheep. That's right. That's right. And for those of us who have grown up in cities and have grown up away from farms, when we hear, okay, God's the shepherd and I'm the sheep, we have experience with sheep and petting zoos. And so we think that sheep are cuddly and nice and soft and that God is our shepherd because we're cuddly and nice and soft. Yeah, right? When you find art of Psalm 23, this is the kind of thing that pops up. Look at us. We're so cute. God loves us because we're so cute. And he wants to be our shepherd because we're so cute. That's what David's saying, right? No. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, David was not dandled on the knee of luxury, which is just a fantastic phrase. Instead, David was raised in the fields. He's a shepherd. And his experience with sheep is not this. It's something more like this. It may not play. We were trying it out earlier. So if I'll just describe the video to you. The sheep comes out of the ditch, it runs, and it jumps back into the ditch. <laughs> sheep, David understands, are stubborn. They are irrational, and they often act against their own self-interest. And so sheep need a shepherd. They need to not blaze their own path. They need to not be in control because when they exercise control, they end up back in the ditch. And in the same way, David understands that we are like sheep who have all gone astray, that, that we are stubborn, that we are irrational, and that we often act against our own self-interest. This is the entire testimony of Scripture, right? When we try to blaze our own path, we end up out of Eden. We end up trying to build a tower to find God and kill him, and we end up scattered throughout the earth. We end up building golden calves after we've heard the voice of God on the mountain. In other words, exercising control is actually not proper to us. It's proper to the good shepherd. It's proper to our leader. And so, yeah, this is a statement of fact. You're a sheep. That might be kind of hard to hear, but there's good news in this too. That when we follow the leader, our souls shall not want. This is where David goes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because when we follow the leader, when we start to lay down this control, we realize that we will have true and lasting peace. David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
and we kind of understand that this is a peaceful scene, right? I, we don't really need to explain this. Like, this is a very peaceful kind of image that David's giving us. Even though in D.C. we associate still waters with mosquitoes, we can still understand that we, we want to be here. We want to be where David is describing. We want to lie down in the green pastures. We want to be led beside still waters. But notice, how do we get here? How do our souls get here? Do we get here by ourselves? No, right? God, David makes the point in verse 2, has to make us lie down in green pastures. The shepherd has to make us lie down. The image is of the shepherd trying to like force the sheep down because the sheep wants to keep going. The sheep wants to keep moving. The sheep may not even know that it's in a green pasture. The shepherd has to make it lie down. And that might be kind of counterintuitive to us because, again, we think green pasture, I want to be there. You go to the National Mall, you want to lie down. But David is saying, actually, your soul does not want to rest. It does not want to be at peace. The natural disposition of our hearts is not rest, and it is not peace. It's anxiety. It's movement, right? It's activity. It's stress. It's worry. It's going. The Bible understands and teaches, and David is saying here that our souls are kind of like the Energizer Bunny with his little hammer, right, his little drum, and he spins himself around in circles, and he goes, and he goes, and he goes, and he can't stop going because if he stops going, is he really the Energizer Bunny? Right, and in the same way, the Bible understands and teaches that our souls are overactive, that the natural state of our soul is not rest, it's activity, that we go and we move and we produce and we succeed and we fail and we keep going because if we stopped, we'd have to pause and consider whether we have an identity apart from what we do and apart from what we produce. David is saying that, that when we do that, we are showing that we have an identity issue. When we nest ourselves in our production and what we do and how we succeed or even in how we fail, we're not going to find peace because we're still trying to blaze a trail in our own life. We're still trying to exercise control by doing and by working. And what's the solution here? The solution is to lie down when and where the good shepherd says to lie down. The, good, the solution, the soul medicine, actually is to rest. And the reason that resting is the medicine for, for our anxious souls, for, for our tendency to overproduce or to find our identity in what we do is because when we rest, we have an opportunity to pause, recalibrate, and figure out whether our identities are in what we do or whether we're in God. Rest is kind of a diagnostic, and it's a practice for where the identity of our souls are. Right? If you rest, you take a few hours off here and there, and your soul is at peace, and you feel like you're resting in the Lord, then, then maybe you have peace, maybe you're finding your identity in God, but I'd imagine for many of us, when we rest, we don't feel that way. Maybe there's actually some anxiety that comes along with resting, some desire to continue working just on the side, just checking my emails a little bit, right? Just trying to make sure there's not fires to put out, because I still need to be in control, and when I'm in control, I feel like I have an identity, and when I stop being in control, when I rest, I feel like I don't. But when we rest, we have an opportunity, as John says in John 1, 12, to believe, to recalibrate our souls, that we have been made children of God, not by the will of man, not by the will of flesh, but of God. We have an opportunity to ask ourselves and to, to realign our souls with God, to rest when the good shepherd says to rest, to lie down when he says to lie down. 
And so, man, we, we need to rest. And maybe that looks different for you. We all have a number of different jobs that might look different. But David says rest is important. Rest allows us to find out where our identity is. And if we have our identity in the good shepherd, if we're able to follow the leader, if we're able to lie down when he says to lie down, to rest when he says to rest, then true and lasting peace will come to us because our souls won't be shaken when our production is affected, when our work is affected, when we're moved off course than where we expect it to be. We lie down and we follow the leader. But we understand that this isn't kind of the only season of our life. David continues down this path and he describes starting in verse four that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We understand that there are going to be times in our life when, we're, when we maybe feel off kilter, when we maybe feel like we're not at peace. And it's, it's not because we're finding our identity in something else. It's because life is hard. It's because we're grieving something. It's because we're grieving a relationship. We're grieving someone we love. It's because we find ourselves in a really hard job with a really hard boss. It's because we're sick. Someone close to us is sick, right? In those seasons, what do we do? Well, David says even here, and this is the second point, that even here in the valley, we continue to follow the leader because there we find true and lasting protection. When we follow the leader in the middle of the valley, we continue to find true and lasting protection. But David wants to assure us and, and exhort us and encourage us to continue following the leader there because when we don't follow the leader there, again, we may try to find ourselves getting out of the valley as fast as we possibly can, but again, it may lead us to places that we don't want to go. Right? The tendency in our hearts when we find ourselves in the valley is to try to press the eject button, get out of the valley as fast as we can, and just kind of try to distance ourselves from it, right? to exert control, to try to get away from it. Maybe we do something dramatic like move across the country. Maybe it's a little less dramatic. We try to numb ourselves to the reality of the valley. Right? We scroll TikTok too long. We look at Instagram too much. We turn to substances like drugs and alcohol, or maybe we even turn to something like food or sleep, and we eat too much food, we sleep too much, and we do so in order to numb us to the reality that we're in the valley. David says that doing those things are only going to lengthen the valley, that the surest way through the valley is to continue following the leader, because there we will find true and lasting protection. Now, the protection that David describes when it comes to, to things like the valley is not protection from anything bad happening to you. David thinks you're going to find yourself in a valley at some point in your life. Again, sometimes it's because you're a sheep and you've done something foolish and you've ended up in the valley, and sometimes it's because we end up in a, we're in a fallen world and we just end up in the valley. But the reality is that the valley is inevitable. God isn't always going to protect us from hard things that happen to us, but the true and lasting protection has to do with, with the more kind of existential matters, right? With the fear beneath the fear with the, the suffering beneath the suffering. David gives two examples here. The first is that God offers us true and lasting protection in the valley from loneliness. This is how he begins when he talks about the valley. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you notice the change in language here? Did you see it? Before this point, David has been talking in the third person. He's been talking about God. And here, he switches to the second person. He starts talking to God. That kind of oddly, in the valley, in the darkness, with the predators circling around, this is where David finds intimacy with God. 
This is where David finds the ability to not only talk about God or to know God or to, kn to, know, to know things about God, but to actually know him, to have intimacy with him. The reason I think that David is telling us this is because one of our fears when we find ourselves in the valley is that we are alone, right? That we are lonely, that no one can understand what it is we're going through, that no one understands the, the reality of our suffering, that even if we could find the ability to communicate the depth of our suffering, other people either wouldn't care or they would run away because they don't want to be close to someone who's in a valley because they don't want to find themselves in a valley, them, uh, find themselves in a valley, right? There's this fear that we're all alone. And yet David is saying here in verse 4 that in the valley, God is with you. That the valley might actually be the crucible that produces intimacy with you and God. That yeah, the tendency, the natural reaction is to try to get away from the valley, to numb ourselves to its reality, to try to run away as fast as we can. But when we do that, we're actually running away from the leader who is in the valley right there with you and with us. Right? This is how the New Testament talks about suffering. Right? How many people in the New Testament found themselves closer to Jesus because they suffered? I think about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 who talks about the thorn in his flesh. When he talks about the thorn in his flesh, he says he, he asked God to take it away, but instead he encountered his grace made perfect in his own weakness. He encountered the grace of God made perfect in his weakness. Or throughout Philippians, he talks about when he suffers, when he's imprisoned, he has the privilege to share in the sufferings of Jesus. That where he suffers, he finds himself closer to Jesus. That the shepherd is there with him. That he gets to follow the leader through the valley. The reason that Paul has this assurance and that people in the New Testament went to their death fearlessly knowing that the shepherd was there with them is because the shepherd had suffered with them already and had suffered for them already. Right? This is what Hebrews says, that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He has suffered for you already. And in fact, the shepherd, the leader, has suffered more than you and I ever will. When he was separated from the Father for the first time in eternity, that level of suffering, of grieving, of separation, of loneliness was worse than anything you and I will experience. And as a result, he is able to be in the valley. He understands your suffering. He's able to be there with you, and the call is to continue to follow him there, to continue to press in, to continue to follow the leader, and not to distance yourself. And as we do so, what we'll find is that God also protects us from meaninglessness in the valley. I think this is the second fear that we have, that when we go through valleys, when we go through sufferings, we're going to turn around and what we'll see is nothing, absolutely nothing, that it ended up being meaningless, that it meant nothing, that it was a waste of time, a waste of precious years of your life, that we'll turn around and it didn't have anything to do with anything. It was meaningless. David says, no, when we're in the valley and we continue to follow the leader, he protects us from meaninglessness in the valley. He notes that he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. David is not stagnating. He's not just kind of sitting there. He's not just allowing the, the animals to circle him and come at him. There is movement as he follows the leader. The leader is leading him somewhere, even in the valley. He is going somewhere. And as we'll see, the place that he's going is a table set before him in the presence of his enemies. It's a good place, but he has to get through the valley first. But when David comes out on the other side and he is in that table, in that place, he looks back and he sees meaning because it got him somewhere. It got him somewhere. There was meaning there. 
This is where secular narratives about suffering tends to fail, right? In our modern world, which is so, you know, therapeutized, right, where so many people, and, and therapy and counseling are really good things, but where so many people get counseling, get therapy, get medication, try to find meaning in their suffering, you know, you can get help and you can talk to someone and you can be comforted, but at the end of the day, if you don't have Jesus, there is no answer to your suffering. The answer is nothing. It's meaningless. And so whatever the answer is to the question, why does God allow good things to happen to people, or bad things to happen to people, it is surely a less scary answer than the answer to the question, what does suffering mean if there is no God? There is no God, there is no meaning in suffering. But God does not allow your suffering to be made meaningless. But he leads you somewhere. He will lead you through it. And he will do something with it. I was in uh, South Car- or At- Atlanta a couple weeks ago, and uh, I was talking with this guy who used to be a worship leader, a pretty famous worship leader, actually. He was at a point in his career about 15 years ago where he was about to really break out. He had signed a major deal. He had assembled his band. He had made a couple of hits. And then he started to develop a degenerative condition in his throat that affected his vocal cords. And it basically caused him to permanently lose his voice. Can you imagine that? Being a worship leader and losing your voice permanently? Like, like being Mike Tyson and losing your hands, right? Like, what do you do in that situation? And I asked him, like, as you look back on that and you reflect on that, how do you feel about it? And he said, you know, I'm grateful. He said he was grateful, which was not what I was expecting. And so I asked him why, and he began to tell me that when he lost his voice, he was devastated, and he did try to distance himself, but eventually he pressed in, he found Jesus there, he encountered the love of Christ in a way that he hadn't before, and he was able to start sharing his story and sharing the intimacy that he had found with Jesus in the midst of that valley. And as he began to share his story, doors started to open, he began to meet people, he realized that college students especially were resonating with his message, and now he leads college mobilization from one of the largest denominations in the country. And so he said, look, I looked back, and that was a hard valley, but it led me somewhere, and God made something of it. And look, it may not be the case that you know soon what God's doing in your valley and what God's doing in your suffering. It may be that you don't even know that until you get to the other side of eternity, but I promise you that God does not allow your suffering to be meaningless. He's doing something there. He's leading you somewhere, and where he's leading you comes in verse 5. David begins to tell us, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When David comes out on the other side, he finds that God has provided him true and lasting protection, and he sees a table set before him in the presence of his enemies, which is unexpected, right? God is the one who has led David. God is the one who has made David lie down in green pastures. God is the one who has led him through the valley. We would expect David to be the one who sets the table, who serves God, who says, thank you, master. You have done it all and you deserve it all. And yet God is the one who sets the table before David. That as David comes out the other side, he sees this table that is rich with food. He is washed, he is anointed with oil, and his cup overflows. What is David saying? Well, I think that David is, is ta- saying and bringing us to our third point, that as we follow the leader, as we follow God faithfully, we will find that there is true and lasting provision there. In other words, he's heading off kind of the, 
the, maybe the primary area that our souls try to convince themselves that we need to accumulate and exercise control. That when we accumulate and exercise control, if we just did it a little more in this area of my life and that area of my life, then I would finally be happy. I would finally have enough. I would finally be satisfied. And David is saying, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. True satisfaction, true and lasting provision only comes by following the leader. Right? We kind of all know this and we've all seen this. Yet think about money, which is the classic example here. Right? If many of us try to convince ourselves that if we exercised enough control, if we just had a little more control over our finances, then we would be satisfied. Then we would feel like we had true and lasting provision. But as Charles Spurgeon said, the only amount of money that everybody wants is just a little more. It's a good quip. Wish I could come up with things like that. Right? Money is an illusion. It's a mirage in the desert, and it will not satisfy. Or in the same way, in this city, many of us think and try to convince ourselves that if we just exercised control over our careers and accumulated a little more power, a little more control, you know, a, a little more power, especially compared to that person, then we would feel satisfied. Then we would feel like we have true provision. But let me ask you, those of you who work on the Hill, are your bosses satisfied with the amount of power they have? No, because there's always more to accrue. There's always more to have. It's an illusion, a mirage in the desert, and it will not satisfy. Many of us in D.C., you know, many, many people here are single. It's, I think it's the most, the most single city in the United States. And we try to convince ourselves that if we, if we just had a spouse, if we had a husband or a wife, if we had a family, then we would feel like we had provision. Then we would feel like we were truly provided for. But why don't you ask your parents how they felt when they were raising you and your siblings and they put you to bed and there was a sink full of dishes, there was a filthy house that was clean just 24 hours ago and there was so much more to do before they even went to bed. Did they feel satisfied? Did they feel satisfied by having you, precious child? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Even something good like family, it's a mirage, it's, it's an illusion, and it will not satisfy. The only thing, the only thing, David says, that can satisfy is the love of God that we find in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because the love of God that we find in Jesus is the only, uh, the only kind of infinite thing in the universe. It is not zero sum. You having more of the love of God does not mean that someone has less of the love of God. But as more and more of us press in, the love of God abounds, and it abounds more. That the love of God is the only thing in the universe that makes us say at the same time, too much, I can't have any more, and I must have more. Right? This was Moses' experience on the mountain, that he needed to see the glory of God. He needed to be in his presence, but when he saw his presence, he said, I can't bear to be in it, because I'm just a human. And yet John says in John 1.14 that we now have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. And one drop of that glory, one drop of that presence, one drop of that love would be enough to satisfy us for many lifetimes, and yet a whole ocean of it would make us say, I still need more. Then the words of C.S. Lewis, as we follow the leader, we go further up and further in, and we encounter the love of God in greater measure and newer measure every day. It is the only thing that will satisfy our souls. It is the only thing that is not an illusion, that is not a mirage. It will satisfy. It will provide true and lasting provision. 
Now, as we wrap up here, David says that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That following the leader leads us ultimately to the house of God. But why? Why does it do that? Some of you notice that I skipped a part in this psalm, and some of you are mad about it. You're getting ready to talk to me about it. It's okay, we're going to talk about it now. I wanted to wait till, till now to show you that the entire psalm is supposed to be comforting. This entire psalm kind of eases the anxiety of our souls as it speaks to the things that our souls want, peace, protection, and provision. Every last word of this psalm is meant to comfort you, including that one part that didn't seem so comforting on the first read. Right? Why does God do this? Again, it's not because we're cute and cuddly sheep. He does it for his name's sake. God leads us into his house. God leads us beside still waters. He makes us lie down in green pastures, and he walks us through the valley of the shadow of death for his name's sake. And some of us say, what? Doesn't that mean that God is selfish? Doesn't that mean that he's prideful? Right? Why would God do this for his name's sake? And the answer is, God is the source of all beauty and goodness and love in the universe. If God were about anything other than himself, God would be about something that was worse than himself. The fact that God is about himself, that God is about his glory, that God is about his name is good news because it means that God is moving everything in the right direction towards himself. But the real comforting part of the psalm is this, that the glory of God's name is attached to the good of your soul, that God has attached the glory of his name to the destiny of your soul, that it has done God good it has, made, it has been his choice to attach his glory, his name, to where you ultimately end up. We know that especially because of Jesus, the one who is ultimately and forever our good shepherd, who came to earth for us, and in his life, death, and resurrection provided us true and lasting peace, true and lasting protection, true and lasting provision, so that we will glorify for God forever, and in glorifying God forever, we will enjoy him forever, so that we will feast with him in the house of Zion forever, so that we will end up in the house of the Lord for the rest of our lives, for eternity and forever. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.